Congratulations, listener, you've done it. You've managed to tune in to the Cal Crutchlow episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. The MotoGP legend gave me a real education in what it takes to be a successful motorbike racer, and I mean, my jaw is still on the floor, such is my shock and awe at his top speed and average heart rate statistics. And in a first for the podcast, my guest is left somewhat speechless by Guess That Snack. Right, that should be more than enough to whet your appetite. Let's get on with the pod. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sigma Sports. Yeah. Cal Crutchlow is used to racing motorcycles at eye-watering speeds, and we're talking 350 kilometres an hour here. So when I first learned that he rides a road bike for up to 30 hours a week, I was keen to get him on here to tell us more about the connection between the two-wheel disciplines. Check it out. Well, Cal... First and foremost, mate, thank you very much for joining me. Um, we've just started recording midway through your kind of, um, you had a bit of a tech issue. And um, just explain to us exactly what happened, mate. You can be full and frank. <laughs> wow, well, yeah, I don't know the legal procedure on this um, <laughs> with with regards to my team. But yeah, as, as you said, a technical issue. Um, I race a motorcycle for a living, so I didn't really realize that I needed a, a laptop to be able to do this um, for the best recording, so I thought I'd do it on my phone. Then uh, I had no laptop, so I went round to my uh, to my team managers when I knocked on the motorhome door. He never answered, so I opened it, and uh, he's there doing uh, naked yoga. So, <laughs> Brilliant, but mate. He, he kindly gave me his laptop, so that's superb. Well, there you go. I mean, um, that that is good news. That is good news. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you have painted a picture in my mind, quite an alarming one, actually, Cal. Um, But first and foremost, um, welcome to Matt Stevens Unplugged, mate. It's really, really good of you to give up your time. Um, Now, everybody will know who you are, what you're doing, but could you just paint us another picture and just tell us exactly where you are in the world right now, mate? Well, thanks for inviting me on. It's uh, it's a privilege to be able to uh, to come on your show. I know uh, all your podcasts. I know that a, a lot of living legends have been on, um, <laughs> and and now I get to uh, to come on and add my name to it. Not being the living legend, but being able to come on and uh, ramble a, a, along for a little while. Um, but yeah, at the moment I'm in Valencia. Um, we've had a strange season, MotoGP season with with regards to having so many races in such a short amount of time, we're doing a lot. We've never, ever done back-to-back races at the same circuit. And this year we've had uh, four times where we've done it at the same circuit. So we raced in Valencia last weekend and uh, we'll race again in Valencia this weekend and next weekend, which is the uh, final MotoGP race, we'll be in in Portimao in, in Portugal. So looking forward to this season finishing. It's been a long, long hard, tough season, um, but a good one for some, not a great one for me, but, um, you know, you take it as they come. Yeah, it's like I say, it's bike racing. It's it's motorcycling. I mean, I know the, the last MotoGP just a couple of just a couple of days ago. Uh, I was just reading a quote, and if you don't mind me saying it, um, Cal. I mean, you you had a bit of an off, but you you said quite succinctly. I think it was on one of the motorcycle websites. Uh, I ran out of talent. I, what, I think that's probably the best quote in terms of actually just laying it down that I've ever heard, mate. I hope you're okay, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. Um, it was a 
a stupid crash. Um, in in sort of layman's terms to people that might listen to this that don't understand motorcycle racing in a technical point of view, yeah, what what happened to me in the crash is very similar to what happens on a on a bicycle. Um, you get the slipstream effect. You, it's like sitting on or, or um, being in the draft. Yeah. And I got I, I got sucked in. I've got a guy who in front of me who's a big guy, to be honest, um, racing MotoGP. And the deceleration, you don't have that wind effect or the drag effect on you. What we, what we often do a lot of the time is in the braking zone to pull out of their draft so that we do have that deceleration uh, into the corner. And this isn't a corner you can do that. There's not, there's right. no room to play with. Um, wow. And he made a mistake the lap before, and I thought, right, he's going to make the same mistake again. And evidently, it was me who made the mistake because I got sucked in and went into the corner probably 50k too fast. I nearly wow. made it. Honestly, I nearly made it. Right, um, right. Staying on the track, but it came to the point where I exceeded the limits of adhesion, ran out of talent, and uh, <laughs> had an early gravel bath. Flipping heck, mate. It's that, like you say, it's that, you know, but in, in cycling and, you know, motorcycling, it's that tyre grip trade-off, mate. And that's what you, your job is to push the limits of that tyre grip trade-off, isn't it? And uh, uh, do you know what, though? I, I mean, I, I've never dr- ridden a motorcycle myself or ridden scooters. My dad was a massive motorcyclist. He was a total petrol head. And I went on the back, riding pillion for years with him. But um, nobody's ever really described in the way that you, that you did, you know, essentially – because of the high speeds that you're racing at, when you, you, you know, you use the comparison riding in the slipstream of a bike rider, okay, 50, 60 K an hour, there's a definite benefit. But when you're doing hundreds, 150 Ks an hour, you're, you know, the, the, the kind of braking different, you're essentially braking in a vacuum and it's different, isn't it? It's completely different at those sorts of speeds. Yeah. And obviously the, the, the more speed that you have, the, the longer the deceleration zone is. Yeah. De- depending on the corner. Um, but, to give you some sort of uh, perspective of it, we come out of uh, a first gear corner, which is the last corner in Valencia. Yeah, uh, there's it's it's not a very long straight. I I would guess at the straight being six hundred meters long, and already by the braking zone, we're doing three hundred and thirty kilometers an hour. So just over two hundred, oh. just over two hundred mile an hour, I would say. Um, I must say that at this point in the podcast, I nearly hold your proceedings. I actually wanted to pause it, but I couldn't because it was live. So I have now. And I wanted to take Cal to one side and say, Cal, stop showing off. There's no need for it. I know you're good at these speeds. Well, they're just works of fiction. Um, but apparently they're not. He does travel and his colleagues and, uh, and peers in the sport at over 350 kilometers an hour, which in some countries on the open road is borderline illegal. Yeah, it's uh, it's a science. It's, it's a yeah. science as as with cycling or as with other sports. And um, there's a lot of tricks of the trade to be able to decelerate the bike in in a good way, uh, depending yeah. on your bike manufacturer, depending on the rider. Yeah. Um, but obviously, it doesn't always work like that. It, you know, there can be so many things taken out of your hands, yeah. i.e., a person being in front of you, or even yeah. a person being behind you, because you have yeah. to. You know, to defend, you have to break later. You may have to turn the corner a little bit tighter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great sport. There's no doubt about it. It's a great sport. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember. Um, I mean, I know the MotoGP is kind of it's available differently now to kind of watch. But I remember, you know, a few years ago, watch being an avid 
viewer of MotoGP. And of course, you know, when I was watching, it was Valentino Rossi who was dominated. And I was, I can't believe that the actual guy's still, he's still actually racing it. Because it's quite a young, youngish person's man sport, really, isn't it? Let, let's be honest with you. But um, again, I, I, forgive me if I go off on tangents. That's just the way that I roll, mate. So I do apologize. But um, Rossi's still racing, isn't he? I mean, I mean, amazing, really. He is. He is. He hasn't raced the last couple. He had the coronavirus. So, of course, yeah. Um, unfortunately, he hasn't been competing. He raced this weekend, just gone, um, and he he broke down. Um, but yeah, at forty one, he is now. So he'll be forty two next season when he's competing. Um, it's yeah. It's normally a sport that you tend to retire um, in your mid. 30s ish you know a lot I, I know a lot of people are retired at, at 28 29 or, yeah. or early 30s but um yeah. yeah in the mid 30s is, is the sort of time um if you've had a good career yes you can uh, prolong that career by going maybe to a different championship continuing to race um you know at a different level being in MotoGP, it is it, the top level there's there's 20 uh, four riders on the grid and I'm not saying all them tw- I'm not saying those are the only 24 riders in the grid that are the best 24 in the world because there's yeah. other guys in other championships that are competitive as well but um, essentially as I said that that's getting old as such to to be able to compete at this level when you are competing against a guy who now is leading the championship who's I think he's 22 years old and the guy second in the championship is, is 21 or or 20 even. Um, Oh no, he's 21. Sorry. So, you know, and I remember when I was that age, you, you, you have a different perception on, uh, on things on life, on the risks you're willing to take the, you know how it is. You, you, when you get older, you, you, I'm not saying you slow down, but you, you, you do things in a different way. As yeah, there's more, there's um, more to think about, isn't there? there there's yeah, clearly yeah, more absolutely. to think about. And, and as, as, as you get older, I think there's the, the benefit of experience because every race situation is, is different. You're constantly learning and you never really stop learning. But, um, uh, you, but you see it in multiple sports, especially sports with, let's be honest, an element of danger, an element of risk. And you, you look at kind of motorsports, you look at downhill mountain biking, you look at kind of freestyle BMX and pe- people are going faster and doing bigger jumps. And it's just, um, and you look back and think, oh my God, this, it's the, the kind of curve, it, there's this, this ridiculously steep skill curve, isn't there? But as you get older, it's tempered, you know, it's buoyed by experience, but you kind of look at life in a different, in a different way. You look beyond the sport, you have family members, kids, there's a lot to factor in, isn't there, mate? Yes, especially with <laughs> especially with what we do. You know, I know yeah. all. I think all sports men, sports women. Um, you know, it, it's a lot. It's a lot different to. I don't mean. I don't, don't take this the wrong way, or I don't mean it in the wrong way. It, it's a lot different to normal life. You know, it's not. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not. A, it's not an easy thing to deal with. We have, We have, and I've always said this. We have the best job in the world, being able yeah. to do something you love and a sport you love and travel around the world and all these things. But there's a lot of sacrifices with that as well, as we know. Um, And when you're on top, it's fantastic. When you're not on top, it's, it's maybe more difficult than doing a normal job to an extent. You know, you have the pressure, you have um, the traveling, maybe when you don't enjoy it. Uh, You know, as I said with this year, with, 
with re- with regards to how the season has gone. We've been living in a motorhome for uh, for half the year, and now yeah, living in a motorhome is fantastic for a week's holiday. But yeah. living in a motorhome like we've done for three races, three weeks on the bounce, you go home for nine days and then you come back for three weeks again in your motorhome and you're alone essentially. Um, It's not, it's not been an easy year, but on the plus side, when I was 20 to 25, I could do whatever I wanted. I, uh, you know, we, me and, and um, my wife, Lucy traveled around. We, we used to uh, go in the motorhome if we wanted to go in between races to the South of France, we did. And, you know, it's just how the sport has changed a lot as well, and um, and especially as I said this year, um, it's uh, puts a, a a little bit of a, a different spin on things. I think. No, definitely. I mean, just in just to stick on, obviously, it's been a, a difficult year for everybody. You know, just across the across the world, isn't it? You know, we've had to adapt to a new way of kind of living at the moment, and hopefully, you know, there's there's um, there's a little bit of brightness on the horizon in terms of a vaccine, but um, and stuff like that, but. In terms of actually racing, Cal, um, I, I've been speaking to a lot of bike riders. I was at the Giro d'Italia, you know, commentating on the race run in front of it's, it's essentially no no crowds, no fans, or very few anyway. Um, although the Tour and the Giro and the Vuelta, just to name three races, were run with, with no people there, really. We had these magnificent races. I mean, from your perspective in MotoGP, um, what is it like? Are you... Are you aware of a crowd in the set well you're clearly aware of the crowd in a different way aren't you uh than you would be because you're kind of locked off you've got your helmet on you've got the noise of the, mo- the noise of the motorbike cycling's far more immediate isn't it i guess so yeah what, yep. what i'm trying to say in a very poor roundabout way what's it been like to race um just on an empty track with no no real crowd there well first of all i think it it it's sad it's sad that the fans can't come um this is a sport that we often have 200,000 people attend a Grand Prix. You know, that's one Grand Prix. And we have uh, 20 over a year. The European ones, as we know, the European people are crazy for MotoGP. They enjoy to come. Um, It's a a massive spectacle and a massive show. So it's sad that they're not able to to be here. Um, But we have to be very thankful that we've even been able to have a season and showcase that on TV. Um, I know that's for the fans that want to come and even for us that want to see the fans here, you know, it's, it's a little bit, um, not demoralizing when you go to the grid or anything like that, because when we have our helmets on and we race and we have someone in front of us and behind us, you don't, re- you don't notice the crowd as such. Yes. Sure. You feel the, the ambience of, of a normal race weekend when they're there, honestly, on the grid, sometimes you cannot hear yourself think because right. they are, you know, some of the fans are the, the, the ballistic, you know, they, yeah. they just love it. And, and, and we love, they love it as well. So it's been really strange. Honestly, it's yeah. been really strange. As I said, from a riding point of view, you just, you have to concentrate that much. You're concentrating on the guy in front of you and the guy behind you. But there are times when you can take that, uh, when the crowd are, uh, were there in, in, in the past, you can take that, um, the pleasure in of them being there. Because if you have, you know, some a steady last couple of laps or you're winning or you're in a great position or something like yep. that, then you see these people. Honestly, it's one of the best fe- <laughs> feelings in the world that you have yeah. these people watching you uh, race. You fe- A lot of the time you feel like a, um, uh, like a gladiator in a theater, you know, because yeah. a lot of our, our um, uh, 
tracks, the, the banks are quite high on the outside so that they have fantastic views. Yeah. So you, you see yourself as this gladiator in an arena that there's, but there's 24 of you fighting, you know, and they're watching you from the, from the outside. It's, it's quite a spectacle. Um, even for us racing. Now there are the often times, and I will say this, that, um, in the past you can hear the crowd, you know, even though we have so much going on, the wind noise, we have earplugs in, we obviously have the helmet on and the bike is really loud. Honestly, with the MotoGP bikes now, you, you can't even stand next to them. They're that loud. Um, (laughs) but you can hear the crowd when, when it's the last lap or when there's a big fight going on, um, Silverstone is always in my memory of, um, I had two race wins in, in world Superbike there in 2010. Um, and I could hear the crowd in the last, not the last corner, but the corner before it's quite, um, not happening. It's second gear, um, corner coming onto, onto sort of the main straight. Um, and I've also had the same experience in MotoGP when, when I had, uh, a couple of great results there. I can always, you're, I could, I could always hear the second, crowd. weren't you? Second in 2016 there. I was 2016, but then in 2000 and I have to say 12, uh, I broke my ankle actually <laughs> in, in the day before in, in, on the Friday free practice. Sorry. Then I wasn't able to qualify and I qualified. I had to start from the back of the grid. I remember reading so about this. Yeah. I managed to get, I managed to get up to sixth position and that's another time I've heard the crowd because it was, one of my best races of my career, the adrenaline took over and, and I managed to come yeah. through. And, and that was another uh, another one at Silverstone. But there are many over the um, over the calendar that you can hear these, you know, the crowd going absolutely ballistic. Whether it's for you or for somebody else, it's you know, it's uh, it's a uh, you know, it's a great feeling. And I just I want to pick up on that. It's really that a really interesting point about the about what a crowd can do to you psychologically. You know, and you get that. I mean, I've felt that adrenaline spike at races when you can hear people calling your name. You're in a good position, but in in cycling, you get this big adrenaline dump, um, and it, it enables you to press on even harder. And quite often, if this if you're on a, on like a circuit, say the World Championships, for example, is a good is a good example on a long climb. You've got to be really capable. How, uh, you know, aware of how you manage that adrenaline because you could push too far, and, and you're a bike rider. You know what it's like. You you can, <laughs> you can blow. But on in MotoGP and what you do, how, how does the adrenaline affect you? Do you suddenly are you suddenly able to take more risks? Uh, do you suddenly increase the ability to focus? What actually ch- changes physiologically for you? Because it's obviously completely I mean two similar sports, but in terms of physical effort, very different in in in, in the way that adrenaline is used. Yeah, I will tell you this. You can also blow riding a MotoGP bike. Um, right. Probably in somewhere like Malaysia, it's a difficult race. Um, to give you some kind of um, information on, on racing, mm. we race. Now, we've seen it often this year. They've got this new thing that, that Dorna, uh, the organizers, have brought in with, where they show the riders' heart rates. Okay. Um, we we you know, there's a lot of the riders wear a, a band around their their arm, and they're able to pick up the heart rate, and they show it live on screen. Now, you do see a big difference in in the heart rates. Also, depending on the rider, and depending on the manufacturer of bike you're riding, depending on how physically hard it is. Yeah. Now, Honda, who I ride for, has always been known as the most physically hard bike to ride. Now, in 2000, and uh, I did it in 2003. 
2013 when I rode for Yamaha. I did it in 2014 when I rode for Ducati, and I did it in 2016 when I rode for Honda. Yeah. My my average heart rate for the 45 minutes was uh, with the Yamaha, which was the is known as one of the easiest bikes, was 174 for Jeez, the four, so that's, that's, 45 that's, minutes. That's threshold, isn't it? It's basically yeah, threshold. Yes. Jeez, then, yeah. then we then I rode the Ducati and it was 176 for the 45 minutes. Jeez. And then with the Honda, I was 192 beats a minute for 45 minutes, 44 minutes. Um, 192. But oh a lot of it is adrenaline. You yeah. know, you have to you have to realize when you sat on the grid and you are absolutely not moving, doing anything, your heart heart rate's already about 140 beats a minute. That's so you can you can imagine um, what the adrenaline is doing uh, to us, but it also can zap your energy. You know, adrenaline yeah. can can give you that boost of um, boost of energy, but then again, it can also, as you said, on, on a climb or however it may be, it can also make you blow. You know, um, whether you have someone right behind you and you you have adrenaline spike on on the motorbike where you have to push for them a couple of laps, you know, and it's about also regathering that energy back up to make sure you've still got some in the tank because it's so physical. One of the big things that make motorcycle racing physical is we hold our breath a lot. Um, Okay. Because of the G-forces going into the corner and a lot of it is – is from panicking as well because right. we are so on the limit in the braking zones you always think you're not going to stop so, God, so, so the first thing you do is hold your breath yeah you know it's a natural reaction if 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 a cyclist you know i know that we're comparing a lot about cyclists to, to motorcycle racing but the reality is you're a cyclist on motorcycle racer but yeah if you went into a hair if you went into a hairpin on a descent and you thought, I'm not going to make this corner. The first thing you do probably is tense up. Yeah. Take a deep breath. Take it, take a deep breath and hold it. (laughs) Yeah, you would. Yeah. And then crash. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, it's, I think it's an innate reaction, uh, you know, imagine, imagine how many times a lap we're doing that. We have 17 corners a lap and yeah, you know, you, you, you hold your breath for such a long amount of time that then you, your heart rate, it spikes your heart rate even more. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's, uh, it's a very, very physical sport. Um, I mean, you, you people just think, it, yeah. people think that when you ride a motorcycle, you get on it, you twist the throttle and go, honestly, it's so far away from that. You can't imagine. Cause I can't, I have a high heart rate on the bicycle as well, but I cannot replicate 45 minutes, at 192 beats a minute. You know, it's incredible, near man. on impossible, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I I remember speaking. I mean, just as a very very brief aside, having a conversation with Nigel Mansell several years ago, maybe ten years ago, when he had that UK youth cycling team that yep. raced yep. raced the crits, and well, I was chatting to him in the pits, um, and we got talking about you know um, Formula One, and and we we got talking about the physiology, and he said, yeah, that um, in some of the the Grand Prix, his maximum heart rate he'll reach just sat in the cockpit, and I say just sat in the cockpit, you know what I mean, uh, one hundred ninety eight beats beats a minute. It's holding it into some stressful parts, into some corners and stuff. He said uh, average heart rate um, for like forty five minutes one eight five, uh, yeah. absolutely yeah. unbelievable. And and I think for somebody who hasn't done the things that you've done. Um, and it's just a, a physical kind of sport. It's difficult, I think, and it's really you've you've explained it very eloquently, actually, and put it into lovely perspective because it's it's difficult to imagine 
how stressed a body must be or how on the edge a body must be and actually being still and obviously moving the bike around, but still have a heart rate like that. It's astonishing, mate. It just really gives an insight into how stressful uh, y- your job is. Yeah. One of the thing that really um, uh, spikes as well as our core temperature. Um, yeah. and, and obviously that doesn't help the heart rate either um, because you're fighting, your body's trying to uh, pump the heat out even more. Yeah. Now, when you're riding a bike that is, so hot you can't even touch them as you know you know that they are roasting hot and then you ride in 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 a hot country one big thing is we can't disperse the heat because we have the leathers on we have chest protector Um, yes we have some holes in the leathers as ventilation but essentially it does not that much yeah also you're breathing into your own face you know your helmet your, your hot air is going straight back into your own face so the um, I know a doctor um, that did um, a, a study with with a, with a lot of he works with a lot of athletes. Um, did the, did the study on how the core temperature of a motorcycle rider goes, and they say that we have the highest core temperature rate of any sport that he's worked with, but also the fastest wow. from right. when we go especially in Malaysia or Thailand or somewhere like that, because we're already red hot. You're breathing into your own face, sat on the grid. And then, you know, you're going up to 43, 44 degrees core temperature within five minutes. And then you've got to hold it for the next 40 minutes. You know, Um, the the kilos of sweat that you can lose in some of these races is three kilos minimal. That's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. You know, it's you've already. I mean, we've gone off on some some wonderful tangents, mate, and it is it is <laughs> fascinating. But what what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is just rewind a little bit, and yeah. I'd just like to. Um, I know you've obviously moved through the ranks, super sports. This is at the top end, super sports into super bikes, and then transitioned into MotoGP, which is the top end for anybody who's kind of new to this. Uh, back in 2011, uh, after being world champion at super bikes, but go back even further to when you were a kid. I mean, I know your your father. Um, Derek was a motorcyclist, but you relatively, relatively late got, got into the sport, didn't you? So at what point and, and how did it happen? How did you kind of fall in love with the motorbike and realize that that is what you wanted to do professionally? I think that I used to go with my dad when he was racing, he was racing, um, as what we class as a privateer. Um, yeah. so he was paying his own way. He was working his, his normal job and he used to enjoy to race. So he used to go and race on a, on a Saturday and Sunday all around Europe as such, mainly in the UK, but all around Europe. And I used to go um, along and, you know, I grew up in, in, in motorcycle racing paddocks. It, it's as yeah. simple as that. But my big love was football and I played football for, for years since I was a kid until the age of, uh, about 15 or 16, um, I was still playing football and that's what I loved doing. I loved playing football and I could never see past doing anything other than playing football. Now, um, I would say I was good, but I was not fantastic. I, you know, sure. I played for, uh, Coventry city youth team for a while. I played for Aston Villa youth team for a little while. I had some trials, at different clubs and essentially, um, at about 12 years old, my, you know, I had the option with with a, one of my 
uh, dad's good friends and, and my best friend to buy his motorcycle off him that he was racing at the time. Okay. He, he stopped and, and my dad t- and I said, I wanted to have a go on it. So yeah. we, we went and, and rode and my first ever lap around a track, I never, I never completed. I crashed. Uh, <laughs> so you can imagine I'm racing that weekend. I, the first time I ever rode a geared motorcycle was the week before at 12 years old. I always rode little bikes playing around and, sure. and stuff like that. Then we went to the racetrack the next week. I never even completed a lap. And I, I sort of thought, well, this isn't for me. And my dad thought exactly, <laughs> exactly the same, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And the ne- next day, I went out in the junior class and I finished first and second. So, okay. It, but first and second, I, I, was, I hardly even knew what I was doing, you know. But I managed to get round, and it was probably more of me being um, a bit mad that yeah. I managed to fluke it and, and get round, get round with, with no real problem. And that just over the next year, I just f- fell out of love with football and, f- um, and fell in love with motorcycle racing. It's as simple as right. that. And my adrenaline that I was getting, I suppose adrenaline, I must be as with most motorcycle races, a, a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. And, you know, I got that from racing motorcycles. The problem that I had was I was playing football to a great level and I was racing a motorcycle, not at a great level, but loving it. So I was turning up at football with a broken wrist or arm from motorcycle racing. I was turning up at God. motorcycle <laughs> racing with a dislocated knee from playing football. And yeah, the managers were obviously going mad and, and that was it. So in the end at 16 i was probably good enough to continue to race a motorcycle at a good level and i stopped football and and continued with that so yeah it was a strange um scenario but as you said i did start late very late 12 years old to race a motorcycle is late because yeah now you know the kids are racing at three four years old whether it be a dirt bike or a, a small um pocket um um, mini bike what we class as, as, as sort of mini bikes around tarmac tracks yeah. they start at three four years old and and they're fantastic you know it's, it's, it, it is i mean a, a really interesting little couple of words that you said there that in your first race although you'd obviously ridden singles uh, single geared bikes in the past you you think you succeeded because you're a little bit mad i mean <laughs> and, and when i and, and that was really I mean, because let's be honest with you, you you must be, you know, a little bit. There's something that you clearly are, Cal, and 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 your peers and, and people who do the sport that you people who do motorsport and an excellent at the, the level that you do, the best in the world at it. That there's something that you're wired up differently. Let's be perfectly honest with you. Most elite athletes, or or even like art, the best artists, the best musicians, wired up a little bit differently. And would you agree that you've got something you can do things that other people would just like, well, want no way you're happy to kind of just to keep pushing and taking risks. Yes. In, in, <laughs> yeah. but, but I will say in quite a controlled way, yes, you have to be sure. mad a little bit to ride a motorcycle as fast as what we ride. Yeah. But it is quite controlled, you know, it's, yeah. we, it's not reckless, is it? No, it's not. no, we have reckless yeah. riders, <laughs> but I mean, as in, they're still controlled. They're still, it's their sport. It's their, um, uh, it, it's their job as such. So there's, there's gotta be a certain amount of control about it because you can imagine if we never trusted the people on our grid, there'd yeah. be one guy, they'd just take everybody out on the first corner, if, you know, if he was not controlled. So 
yes, we must have something strange that we enjoy and and love and go around at 350k an hour at some racetracks, you know. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, it's a professional sport and it's our profession, so you must have some sort of control as well. Um, but yeah, getting a load of motorcycle races together maybe not even riding motorcycles but doing something else then you'd find mad either in a car or something like that so you know um yeah it's uh it's it's strange when you get us all together away from the sport that's probably even worse than being at the sport i think that i think that might be the subject of another podcast mate we might have to look at that (laughs) look at that that separately mate but uh i mean when you were growing up i mean okay you started racing in the early days at 11 12 and then you got good and started to think about it seriously at kind of 16. But at that time, apart from the influence of, of, of your dad, were there any motorcyclists that you kind of looked up to? I mean, because um, there's some sports people that I speak to that had their heroes and they were pinned up on the wall. Others were just focused on themselves and weren't really aware of the history of the sport. Are you a bit of a historian? Are you interested in, in the sport, the history of the sport leading to where MotoGP is now? And did you have any icons that you kind of wanted to emulate? I... I did. I did to an extent, but mm. um, first of all, I've said this in an interview before, so I apologize for repeating myself right. on, on that sense, but people always say to me, who's who's my hero? And I've always gone along the lines of, and it's not in an arrogant way, I don't have heroes in sure. sport, in sport, in, you know, I don't look at uh, – somebody who's in films or, or a singer or something like that and think they're my heroes. And I know a lot of people do, and they do even in our sport, you know, we'll be people's heroes as such, you know, kids or, or whoever it may be. But the heroes I think in life are people who uh, operate on, on children's brains at the hospital and save their lives. And, yeah. you know, people that help, uh, you know, maybe a cancer patient or, or, or things like that, you know, and doctors and, and, and surgeons and stuff like that, I think are my heroes yeah. or in, in a way. Now, with regards to motorcycle racing, who I looked up to, I loved Troy Bayliss, um, an Australian motorcycle rider. Yeah. Um, I loved McDoohan and also Chris Walker and Neil Hodgson. Now I've had, I had the privilege to be, teammates with Chris Walker some years after as well um, which was a great story um, because when I was first growing up the first year I did motorcycle racing Neil Hodgson and Chris Walker were battling for the British Superbike Championship so yeah I've had some great stories like that in in my uh, in my career I'm not a statistics guy I don't never look at um you know, the amount of times people have come up to me and said, did you know it's this amount of Grand Prix that you've raced or did you know you're the first British rider to do this? Or, And I don't because, and, and, and sometimes I wish I would have paid more attention to it. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm just not that type of guy. I look to the next race and don't really look past it. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it, it's one of them that, I, I, as I said, I wished I would have probably started to take note when I was younger. And it come to the point where I was always already past not looking at the statistics, so I, d- I never carried on, you know? Yeah. I mean, so if I were to ask you then, um, if you had the ability to time travel, if you were able to, to travel back in time to a certain kind of, um, back into the 60s or the 70s, you know, maybe the Barry Sheen era, would, would there be 
a particular generation that you like in your wildest dreams would like to drop into and race against yeah absolutely that that, that generation right there with uh, yeah. with barry and and all the guys it was kenny roberts and, and yeah. then just after you know randy mamola and uh eddie lawson kevin Schwantz, these guys that yeah um yes they were riding for factory teams yes they were very professional but it's a lot what i am now yeah. that the pr pr you know i mean is in yes i'm very um i've always been very good with my sponsors i've always been um um very i would say on, on one side media savvy on yeah. on that side but yeah. um i also created a lot of the press from just be me being me and they were that yeah. they were them you know um not, they were real characters. I mean, I, yeah, I, like I, said, I you know, my, my dad. I mean, my dad just get motorcycle weekly and stuff back in the day, and then that big newspaper. And I used to watch. We used to watch. There was a lot more motorcycling. Then when TV was different, there was a lot more motorcycling online. All the names you just mentioned were, were amazing, and they there was some real cut and thrust, amazing racing. And but they and they often not wouldn't necessarily come to blows, but there was some some proper friction and, and proper yeah, tension yeah. between them yeah. and that's what that's what gives you beautiful sport isn't it is when but, they're there's but respect you know what, but you know do you know what happened at the end of the races they went and had a beer in the night yeah. and, and yeah, yeah. They, they raced on track they maybe had a fight after and then they had a beer in the evening <laughs> now you know the riders i'm not saying they don't talk to each other it's you know it, it we do talk to each other a lot of us are great friends but yeah essentially they're all very very yeah. very two-faced you know and right, okay. you know i i call a spade a spade and i'll, I'll say yeah. how, say it how it is and, and it's quite difficult um that you know that a lot of them are, are very um politically correct and will okay. say whatever the tv camera wants them to say now that's not you know i will never lie about about anything with yeah. regard if somebody asks me a question i won't lie where they will because they know it's you know they they need to because the pr side of it is such so yeah. so there's um, a lot you'd like to i think it's fair to say that you like the riders that we just talked about from the 70s and well, late 70s more into the 80s really but they had an authenticity about them um yeah. you know a warts and all kind of thing and i think in a lot of sport, because of how polished it is, because the corporate side of it, which you know, is that the money's important, etc. We need, but there's to a degree, from what you're saying, Cal, a certain degree of sterility about some of the characters in the sport. Would that be fair to say? Now you mean, or yeah, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, a little bit more sterile, a little bit more afraid of maybe like being themselves, maybe. Yeah, you know, they have to. Uh, that's what I mean. They have to put on a face that yeah. I don't believe a lot of them are actually. Um, and sometimes it's sad to see, sad to see with the young riders because um, you talk to them off the track, they, they're completely different to the camera or to what they need to be, to what they are off the track, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm very, very grateful for the opportunities I've been given, the the sponsors that are here, the manufacturers that are here. and I And I know how to, um, toe the line with regards to what you have to do for the sport um, yeah. but th there also becomes a, a human element in it that if it's not you then why do it you know yeah, um, I know what you mean 
I know entirely. What I, I know exactly what you mean. I know. You, I think you people wanna... would rather you be yourself and honest than, you know, this guy that always says the same thing every week to the to the camera or or whatever it may be. You know. Yeah, I think I think people appreciate that because there's a lot there's a lot of uh, I think many things have come prepackaged homogenous these days. That's across the board, and yeah. and, and what we I think what people want fans of any sport and entertainment or whatever it is. We, we we kind of authenticity in many ways, mate, um, is quite a rare commodity now, isn't it? You know, so so to have that uh, as you know is you know there's a certain there's a lot of integrity in, in being authentic, even if it rubs people up the wrong way sometimes. Yeah, well, you know, I've always tried to be the the same as what I, I've always been, you know, and I I always see myself as no different to anybody else, to the fans, to the uh, to the media, to anybody else, you know, the way that I look at it is, yes, I can ride a motorcycle. Well, uh, you know, it's on TV. Great. Um, we have fans all around the world. Yes. Great. But Matt, I can't do your job, you know, and I can't do uh, a doctor's job or I can't do, um, you know, I can't go and work in an office and, and they're professionals at that. So they do exactly the same as me. It's just, yeah, I do something that's, you know, a, a higher profile. It doesn't mean that it's any any um, means any more than their job. Do you get what I mean? So I think yeah. that I've always had that closeness with um, people who are not in my sport because I see myself as the same as them in a, in in, yeah. in 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 a way. If you get what I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, you like I said, you're held in very very high regard. There's a lot of people who admire you, you know, um, but you, you seem that you're quite direct, but you're you're down to earth and fully aware of of the position that you're in, and there be and there be hundreds and hundreds of people who'd want it'd it like give their right arm to do something that you do, mate. And it's 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 like remembering, isn't it? Um, that although you've earned it, it's still it's a privileged position, isn't it? But you Absolutely. know, it's, it's fully Absolutely. earned. It's not it's not privileged in terms of luck. It's just like no, I've earned this. But do you know what? I'm I'm not going to forget that there's a lot of people who you could argue like the, the great example, like doctors, surgeons, or whatever. Yeah. You know, police officers, teachers. You know, whoever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, pr- 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 probation officers, social workers who do really hard jobs, tough jobs for not a lot of cash yeah. um, to keep our society together. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So Absolutely. it's it's lovely that you. Yeah, I mean, and and that's 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 very very important mate but um uh cal we're gonna i'm just we're gonna change tone slightly in a minute what we're gonna do in a bit is look a little bit more into your interest in cycling i kind of want to know about how what led to you riding your bike and loving your bike but before we do that um i've got a little bit of a competition not a lot of competitions it's a round that you may have heard of it's called guess that snack Uh, and are you a big snack fan mate Oh, you know, the problem is we have to be half be half be like cyclists as as, as light as possible. But yeah, I, do you want to you, tell you? I, I only I only ride my bicycle as much as I do, so I can eat what I want. Uh, that's basically what. That's why. I, I mean, apart from loving riding my bike, I I like I ride my bike primarily now. I'd say seventy five percent of the time, mate. So I can have a nice tea, yeah, or I can have yeah. a glass of Bailey's, or a pint of beer, or a bag of crisps, or a pie. Anyway, so, I am a snack guy. That's the problem. That is the problem. Well, not, I'm glad you not are. Not so much. Not so much at the start of the season, but no. as soon as you start racing, you're snacking all the time because you're in airports or wherever it may be. Fair enough, mate. Well, I'm going to test your your snack knowledge, but not so much your knowledge, your ability to hear the sound of snacks. Now, I've got four bags of snacks in front of me. I'm yep. going to I'm going to tell you what they are, and then I'm going to go through them randomly, crunch them in my mouth, and you need to guess 
that snack. Okay. Guess that snack. Guess that snack. Oh yeah. Guess that snack. <laughs> Pretty good jingle, eh? Was that you singing? That was Cecile Utrup Ludwig. But, uh, but yeah, I don't think my, my singing wasn't allowed, mate. Right, okay. We've got four, I've got four bags of, of snacks, mate. Yep. First up, Walker's French fries, ready salted flavor. You know the little, the really thin ones that look yep. a bit like polystyrene. Those ones, okay. Yep. Got a bag of square crisps. Yep. Remember those? Okay. They're now made by Walkers. These been made by Smiths, didn't they? Do you remember back in the day? The no, salt and vinegar squares. I don't think All I'm right. as old as you, actually, Matt. But yeah, I do remember them. Yeah. <laughs> You, you definitely aren't as old as me, mate. Uh, there's, there's no secret about that. Uh, next up, Jacob's Mini Cheddars. Okay. Yeah, you know Mini Cheddars, yeah? Yep. Um, and then Toffee Butterkist, probably and there are other brands available, Butterkist Toffee Popcorn, all right? Okay, yep. Okay, mate. Um, we've had some really good uh, – we've kind of rebooted this uh, this podcast series recently. There's been some cracking results. Um, ben Foster and all of Shinui were very, very good, mate. So the, the bar has been – raised pretty high so i've shuffled them up first up is this so listen closely and if you need me to crunch again that is within the rules you can have two crunches but we prefer your first answer okay right bags open okay it's going in here we go mate now is that french fry square Popcorn or a mini cheddar? Let's do it again. I'll give you yeah, one more yeah. crunch. Right? I'm yeah. going to yeah. get a little bit closer. Okay, here Let's we go. What do you reckon? Fuck. <laughs> is this for real? Yeah, this is cool, mate. I know, yeah. I know, I know. Right, I think it's, I think it's the square. It's not, mate. It's not the squares, unfortunately. Mm. Sorry about that, mate. Has somebody Next got up. all four of these before? Yeah, honestly, incredible. Right. Next up. Yeah. Here we go. All right. This is snack number two. It's going in. What was that? So was that a pop? Was that a popcorn, what? a French fry, a square, or a mini cheddar? I think I think that was the popcorn. It was a popcorn. Fantastic stuff, mate. Right, you got a, you got you're on the you're you're up and running now, mate. You're in your stride. Two more snacks to go. Rattle through the, these. The first one that you the first one you did. Did you mm. just tell me what it was? No, I didn't give you the answer. No. Okay, you just because told me it wasn't. It wasn't what you said it was. Okay. So the next one could be a square crisp, it could be a cheddar, or it could be a French fry because you've got the popcorn right. Okay. Here we go, mate. Listen closely. You've, you know, you're doing all right now, mate. You're in your, you're in, you're in your stride. Don't panic. Keep that heart rate nice and low. Here we go. There you go. How did that? How did that sound to you? I can I can hear you thinking, mate. Well, see, I think it could be it could be the uh, the French fry because you had a couple of bites. It means you've got to get it in where them squares you just pile you just pile it in. 
Okay. That's so, <laughs> really good thinking, mate, but I'm uh, going to do one more just so you make sure, right? One more. Okay. Here we go. It's the same one. In one. That hey, that's, that's a square. That is a square, Chris, mate. Well done. You're on a roll now, mate. Yeah, You're on a roll. That's it. Right. And the final one, this is obviously going to be a French fry or a mini cheddar, okay? Yep. And if you can get 75%, I think it's a cracking score. A cracking score. Right. Here we go. Right, mate. It's going in now. That's mini cheddar. No, oh, it wasn't a mini cheddar. Oh. It was a French fry. Oh, no. 50, anyway, 50. Uh, 50, that's not bad, 50%. That's not bad at all. That was, yes, that snack. Right. Um, the, I think the key quote there was, is this for real? The first person's ever said that. So thank you very yeah. much for that, mate. Well, <laughs> with the jingle and with with everything that went with it, um, yeah, it's a great game, that. Do you know what I'm I- looking at now? I'm actually looking across at my, uh, my motorhome thinking, I'm going to play this game. I've got some um, honey roast nuts, Pringles, yeah. and yeah. Uh, some cereal. I'm going to play it with with a few of my mates. Yeah, we're all classed as being in the bubble, you know, at the moment because we have our right. coronavirus test and we all stay together. And once we're yeah. in the pad, once we're in the paddock, then everybody in this paddock should be negative because we've all had our tests and we have yeah. so many of them that in the end we're so we're allowed to uh, to see each other and we okay. I have a, um, a great friend of mine Sam Lowe's who races in Moto 2 Championship uh, Jack Miller who races against me an Australian guy uh, Dakota Momola who's my uh, friend and assistant that's Randy uh, Momola's uh, uh, son yes yeah. Son, yeah yeah so um, and then Alex Lowe's who's Sam's brother and we've all you know been together so i'm gonna i'm gonna do this when they come around later good stuff well i tell you, you know, keep us posted the results i mean that's lovely that you're spreading the guess that snack love and that's the first yeah. time that anybody's actually taken it another step further so i do appreciate that actually Cal. thank you very much indeed mate don't that's, be wanting uh, royalties on it because no, um, don't do uh, well, the invoice no what i'll do i'll have to uh, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll i'll speak to legal about that mate um let's not let's not spoil the podcast and sour the um the ambience uh, so far mate right well. Cal, you on your I think it's on your Twitter, it might even be your Instagram, you you said you race on two wheels, you prefer to race on another set of wheels. And we know that you are a massive cycling fan. And I wanna know, I mean, I know a lot about you, but for people who are listening, who are listening for the first time and just getting to know you, I mean, I must explain, you are a cycling nut. You are exceptionally fit. You've got loads of bikes all over the world. How did you get into our wonderful sport, mate? I started to ride. Uh, well, I rode as a kid. You know, I, I, I rode my BMX around the street like an absolute lunatic, um, yeah. as as with most most kids. Um, but actually, ride what I would say a road bike because I don't very very rarely do any mountain biking. Um, two reasons: um, because it doesn't end well. That's the first yeah. one. Because okay. I do things that I cannot do, um, going downhill or between trees or something like that, and I always end up going over the handlebars. Um, I don't mind going uphill on a mountain bike because I half feel safe. Anything yeah. else, I'm out of control. Yeah. And the other one is I have uh, three plates and 16 screws in my ankle. So 
right. the, the, the jumping and bouncing is not great for that anymore. Um, so I ride, you know, near, nearly everything always on the road. Yeah. When I, f- I first started to ride with a, a, f- a friend of mine, um, Michael Fish, who used to work at Science in Sport. Um, okay. Now, now he, he works for Saddleback. Um, and, I, I, you know, you see he, he knew Chris Walker and, and that's when I started to ride a little bit more. Then obviously I progressed from that to go and live in the Isle of Man. Now yeah. I lived in the Isle of Man from 2010 um, and I met Andy Roach. So yeah. Andy lived 500 meters away from me. Um, he used to ride for, for Phil Griff, his, his team in in the UK and I raced against him loads, actually. Okay, and, so, and very, so then, partners. Yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, Phil said to, I met Phil and, and he said, oh, go and ride with Andy. And obviously, you know, I, I rode a little bit, but I was just, a, you know, I was no good. But Andy, honestly, some of the times that I went out with him that first year, he used to leave me the other side of the island. You know, <laughs> well, obviously, not, he, was, no. he, he was, the, <laughs> you know, Andy's known, as we all know, as Peter Pan. Because yeah. he never gets any slower. He never looks any older. He's exactly the same weight as basically when he used to race. And, um, it, you know, he used to go out and honestly, he used to leave me. Everything for Andy on the Isle of Man is 20 oh. minutes home. But the reality what? is it's not 20 minutes home. You know, <laughs> first of all, I had no idea where I was going for the first year. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just got a uh, – I, I got a shock to the system and um, – you know, a wake up call that I was not very good. And, um, you know, I learned sort of learned the hard way with Andy and, but I, I continue to do it and I've done it for since then, 2010 till now. And I ride my bike, you know, I, I would not, you know, don't, uh, take this out of context, but I'm not saying as much as a pro, but I ride my bike 20 hours a week, normally all the time, except Wow. I'm, okay. I'm racing, you know? Yeah. So on race weeks, so this week now I raced on Sunday. I will again be on the bike on Friday, but you know, I'm not hammering it as such, but you know, nine, nine hours or something like that. But if I go home, um, I will ride a 20 hour week easy in the winter. Yeah. It will be 30 hour weeks. You know, um, I lived in California for the last, sort of 10 years in the winter so i can do them 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 weeks no problem out there um yeah, yeah. so yeah i do big weeks and, and and big kilometers over the year um but yeah i love cycling i love it you know it's uh it's a passion of mine it's my motivation to to know where i'm at to be able to improve or you know also lose weight in, in, after the winter or however it may be but it's so strange because I always know if I'm going good on the motorcycle, I'm normally going good on my bicycle. It, it's right. a strange. It's the strangest thing in the world. Um, yeah. But yeah, and you know, obviously, I've just sort of progressed from getting my head kicked in by Andy and the rest of the people in the Isle of Man to 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 being able to. Um, you know, call a lot of um the cyclist friends and and obviously with, with 
with Andy and with with Cav being some of my best friends. And yeah. uh, you know, I've rode all around the world. You know, I've had uh, the privilege to ride all around the world with with taking bikes with me, as you know, um, doing stuff with with Specialized that I've done for for so many years now. For, for ten years, I've you know I've done stuff with Specialized. So um, yeah, and. You know, I, I ride my bike a lot. There's no doubt about it. And most of my week um, is planned around that as such. And, uh, you know, obviously my uh, my goals come first with, with Lucy and my daughter Willow. Yeah. And I will go out in the morning and I'll be back by lunch and I'll spend the rest of the day with them, which is very much what a lot of the pros do, you know. So, it, do, it does sound like um, you, it's, a, it's a kind of pro pro bike lifestyle, but it... <laughs> It's, um, I mean, is, is there anything, I mean, just, just looking at the timeline here, you know, that you've been MotoGP from 2011 to the present day, then, you know, you, I mean, then before and you started riding, you say sort of 2010 and you, you were like Superbikes world champion then. Do, do you think, I know it might be difficult for you to say, because obviously as you go through your career, you've obviously got better, more experienced, but do you think there, do you think riding a bike helps you? I mean, obviously, it keeps you physically fit, keeps the weight off, it keeps you kind of uh, mentally, you know, attuned as well. You get that lovely endorphin drop. But what do you think you've learned from cycling that you've carried across, if anything, to MotoGP that's actually improved your game, if anything at all? I think a lot. I think there's there's similar similarities in a way of the athlete aspect of it. Um, yeah. When you ride your bike. Um, you know, I ride with friends all the time, but a lot of the time you're on your own as well. And there's that thi- there's that thing of you're on a bike and you're alone. When I'm on my mo- motorbike, yes, I'm racing people, but it's you and your your bike. You yeah. know, um, and doing the amount that I do, as I said, I know when I'm going well and I know when I'm not going well, and I know what I need to do to improve or how to get ready for a MotoGP race through cycling it's it, it it's strange how i've worked like that because for 10 years matt i've not yeah. been in a gym honestly i, I don't it's do amazing, anything right? except for on my bicycle i don't do one push-up one press-up nothing um i get race fit from riding a motorcycle you yeah. know as in obviously your arms are the big things on, on the motorcycle it's um, really interesting and That's really- I, I get i get fitter as after the testing at the start of the year with regards to motorcycle racing. But yeah. um, on the bicycle, I always know what I have to do to be prepared to to race a motorcycle. But from cycling, yeah. it's, it's, it's strange how I've done that for so many years. Now, I think I used to run quite a lot. Then I had some problems with my knees and, and ankles from racing the motorcycle. And um, I preferred cycling and... Uh, you know, I've always just, that's all I know. Honestly, yeah. it's all, it's all I know. And, um, as I said, I've done it for, you know, I haven't done it, as, uh, you know, like when, uh, these guys that cycle now and, and the pros, they did it since they were kids, really. Um, yeah. most of them and a lot of them, it's like, it's only like us right, racing a motorcycle. But I think that over the years that, I've enjoyed it so much and, and continue to do it so much that it's part of my life in, in a massive way now as well. I mean, it's, it's clearly, I mean, it is amazing. I mean, your, your years, a decade now racing motorcycles at the, at the, the top level, the pinnacle of the sport. And 
at the same time you've been you know married to the push bike as well and they've clearly become intrinsically bound together haven't they and, and, yes, uh, yeah, and honestly, from what you're saying you you couldn't unpick it if someone were to say no. to you can't ride your bike anymore i'd no. imagine from what you're saying that would have a massive impact on your moto gp career wouldn't it yeah it, you know it's just they to me they work hand in hand but yeah. only, but for me you know it, that's not to say everybody does it because honestly matt some of the guys that race here could not ride out of this paddock and it's a k out of the paddock you know right. it's what works for them you know they go to the yeah, gym or they swim or they run or you know i know a lot of them that are not fit at all they couldn't even run they couldn't do any of it but when they close the visor they're unbelievable on a motorcycle that's incredible now, that's incredible yeah obviously the training aspect of it yes we have to be very fit but when they close that visor they're not very fit but they're just able to do it which means they're so naturally talented at this game uh, and yeah. this sport that others have to work harder at it. And I felt that I have to work very, very hard at it to be able yeah. to be fit, to be able to be competitive. And I got that through cycling. You know, honestly, I yeah. did. Um, that's and amazing. That's why I feel like, you know, it's why I do so much, why I train so hard. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of my base fitness, but a lot of my uh, fitness throughout the year at, at different points is is how well or how not well I'm going on my bicycle. It's strange, you know? It is amazing. I mean, I know the you obviously forged a – you mentioned Cav a few a few moments ago, and obviously both of you come from the Isle of Man. Well, no, you, you've, you're born in Coventry, weren't you? But mm-hmm. you've got a place in the Isle of Man, and yeah. you've hooked up and you've struck up. It's very well documented, isn't it? But I think it's important we, we, we at least mention it a bit because you've got – I know Cav is one of your best friends and how I actually – obviously known, known of you for, for years and years, but – when I came over to with Sigma Sports to do the um, the cafe road with Cav, yep. ended up going out on an extra <clears> ride and bumping into you, and it was great. But the th- apart from meeting you for the first time and and um, you know you're a lovely bloke, had a nice coffee and a ride. I was just amazed. I mean, I know you this amazing bike handler, but I know we we're going down this little country lane, and just to put it in perspective, we're out with a few of us, right? Maybe six or seven of us out. It was a kind of a bit of a wet, damp day, kind of December all in our winter gear. Um, we did, did about 100K roughly, somewhere like 90, 100K. But there was this little country lane we went down, which was wet, slick wet. And it had like grass going down the middle of it, really mossy. And me and Cav were on the front, coming into this little chicane, a little left-hander and a right-hander. And you just come straight up my inside. I mean, didn't brush against me, straight up the inside and went in and out of this corner like you were glued to the tarmac. And me and Cav backed right off because it was super slippy. And then... Within the space of five seconds, you'd like put 15 seconds into us. You just carried on. I just, uh, I've told so many people that story about how you took the corners on, on your bike. I mean, I, th- I think quite clearly you almost understand the technical aspect, the, s- the skill level you have, which you can bring over. And then we talk about cycling helping MotoGP, but clearly the relationship we, you have with your motorbike, your machine, you kind of got to be at one with it. And it's clearly, it's clear that that is replicated when you hop on a push bike as well. I know you're very fit, but the technical side, it just, I was like, oh my God, how the hell did he stay upright? <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's, it's, it's very similar in, in, in one as you know, in one sense, obviously you have to stay within the limits of adhesion now yeah you know yeah. um i'm used to having tires and your tires are the only thing that make you stick to the floor so yeah. 
you know, obviously when we race a motorcycle, we complain about the tires all the time. Mm. Um, now it's only like having a bicycle tire on and you want it put at the right pressure to roll the best, but also grip and, and this, that, and the other, you know, it's, it, it, I'm not saying that is easy for me because I know some fantastic bike handlers, Cav being one of them, you know, yeah. and, um, yeah, we, uh, we, but I do have to say, you know, obviously, as you said, Cav is, is, is one of my best friends. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Um, I'd do anything for him. He'd do anything for me that there's no shadow of a doubt, but the arguments we have had <laughs> riding bicycles, you cannot <laughs> even imagine Brilliant. I, when we go down the descent and he tells me I'm doing it wrong. And then, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be riding side by side. He'd be saying you're riding too hard, but if he's riding too hard, it's if he's riding, yeah, he's fine. You know, not allowed to say anything, but, um, no, we, uh, yeah. So, you know, some of the, some of the riders I've rode with, and as I said, uh, Cav being one of them, especially, um, riding, uh, down the descents and stuff like that, you know, I, I look at them and think they're fantastic because obviously I've learned my craft uh, a lot of um, on on a racetrack. You know, my yeah. my job is to stay on a motorcycle and go around as fast as possible around corners. So, you know, um, I'm never surprised when when I uh, when I go out with with good riders and, and they can descend and go around corners just as fast. No, it's it, it was like it just it kind of opened my eyes, and obviously, and, and I, I know I when that was. I know when that was when you were there because <laughs> yeah. I got. Don't you remember? I got back the night before from the three week flyaway races. That's I right. I, I flew back on that Monday, so it will have been a Tuesday or a Wednesday, um, and I flew back. I'd just done uh, Japan, Australia, and Malaysia race back to back. Yeah, and. I kept getting Cav saying, "Come out, come out, come out," and I was thinking, "I'm going to, I'm head kicked in here." Um, but I've just done three weeks away, hardly rode my bicycle, and uh, done a 24-hour flight home. So, um, no, it's good to get out. It's great. The Isle of Man is fantastic. I love riding my bicycle in the Isle of Man. It's, it's a, hard. It's, a it's hard. That's yeah. why it's hard. Yeah, I mean, for the same distance covered. I mean, when you compare it to roads over, even in the UK, well, not so much the UK, but ro- the roads on on the continent. You know, when you got that nice smooth yeah, tarmac, yeah. same power. You're doing another three, four k's an hour. I yeah. mean, I use the word grippy a lot in my commentary, but grippy is a best one of the best ways to describe the roads on the Isle of Man. But they're beautiful. But it's you you, you get a lot of bang for your bucks per kilometer per mile, don't you? Absolutely, and I think that's why the Isle of Man cycling scene and and the amount of great riders that have came from there is uh you know it's because that they're willing to put in the hours and it's hard work you know it's hard riding it's not you're not just cruising down the the coast all the time you know sometimes you can be riding along at 20k an hour down down the coast road and sometimes you can ride in at 70k an hour down the coast road you know no, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely place, and hopefully I'll be coming back. I'd like to come back soon just for a, a few days. If I bump into you, mate, we'll have to go for a ride. But uh, one, uh, just a, another little um, thing that I kind of need to mention, because we're, we're well over an hour now, mate, and it's been a wonderful chat so far. I've really, really enjoyed your company, and you've been very open, mate. It's been no, so insightful. It. No, no, but um, it's 2016. You know, it's an exceptionally significant year. You know, I mean, the, I think there's a lovely synergy here. You love the bike. You know, you're good mates with Cav, but you know, Mark in 2016 had one of his best ever years at the, at the Tour, like a resurgent year for Mark, wasn't it? Winning those four stages, yellow jersey, and then you as well. You were the first British winner 
of a top flight uh, Grand Prix on motorcycle since Barry Sheen in 1981 when you won the you won the Swedish Grand Prix in the wet, didn't you? And a 35 year wait. So both of you, similar age, living in the Isle of Man, that must have been first significantly for you. When you won that race, were you thinking about the Barry Sheen thing? I know a while ago you said you didn't really think about the kind of history, but it was a, a for a British rider, mate. That was a massively important ride, wasn't it? And it must for you personally. How much did that mean? Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't mean to correct you. It was uh, Bruno in the Czech Republic. But Czech, oh, sorry, that, oh, that was, yes. this, the Swedish the second win, wasn't it in the wet? Sorry, yeah. I uh, no, we, we don't race in Sweden. Don't you, Matt? No, but you, you know oh, you can no. take you can take it. You know. Hold on a minute. <laughs> sorry, do you know what it is? My writing. Barry Sheen won the Swedish Grand Prix <laughs> in did, 1981. Yes. He did. Sorry, yes. my um, writing is atrocious. Anyway, right. sorry, mate. Sorry. I didn't mean to correct <laughs> you. Then. Um, please, but, please do. So. Um, yeah, I won in Bruno in a in a great race. To be honest, it, you know, it was a hard race because I started badly. I, I was down in fifteenth, and I and I managed to win the race. So I didn't know that I knew Barry Sheen was the last British Grand Prix winner, but I didn't know it was thirty five yeah. years. So and my racing wow. number is thirty five. Now, unfortunately, my age is thirty five, but um, <laughs> you know, it was thirty five years in two thousand and sixteen, um, and it was great to be able to do that. And they actually told me after the race that, it, you know, it was it was Barry 35 years ago. And I, I couldn't believe it, honestly. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I had a great year that year. And probably my best win to date was the uh, Phillip Island win later on in that year when, uh, you know, I had a, a really, really big lead in, in MotoGP terms of, of nearly seven seconds at one point. Um, wow. So, yeah, 2016 for us, for both of us was a great year. Um, and th- one of my best rides, I would say, that year was um, was my uh, Silverstone ride. Um, yeah, well, that was a, a really, really good one um, where I finished second. I qualified on pole and finished second. Um, yeah. And that was the start of it because 2016 was the main part of that year for me was my daughter was born um so then i it was so funny because every single person in um not in sport they think that you have a child and you're done especially yeah. in motorsport because they think you're going to lose your edge you you know there was a famous saying that um ferrari said once that you lose a second a lap i gained a second a lap Wow. And, you know, um, Willow was born and, um, I went to, I went to Austria, uh, just after that and I actually jumped the start. I was that keen to get home. I jumped the start. So, right. um, and then I went to Bruno and won and then my year just went fantastic, um, yeah. from then on. So yeah, it was just a very, very big year in, uh, in my life, 2016. And I mean, I think we'll end it on that, Cal, but I think um, it's really interesting that, you know, you talk about getting older and the responsibilities you have in life as a, as a, as a slightly older person. You look at things through a different lens, of a different perspective, different set of responsibilities. But also within that, let's not forget there's, you know, happiness, mate. You know, it's one of the most impo- fundamentally important things. If you're content in life and you've got a new, a new child to celebrate, to enjoy the company of, you know, um, Maybe that I think that we don't really. I mean, we do talk about that, but in in the in the context of your sport, 
it could be seen as as, as like a weakening, you know, because you're going to be thinking about other things. But clearly for you, you became clearly very happy, very content, and you could, you know, exploit that and and almost express yourself more on the bike. Yeah, it was, you know, it it was just strange circumstances that, as I said, everybody thinks that you're going to get slower and I got faster. And I hadn't, you know, as a sportsman, and I, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit it, I was selfish. Uh, you know, yeah. if I wanted to go left, I went left. And it was as simple yeah. as that. If nobody wanted to come with me, I'll go on my own. Okay. And I, I was that, that's not me being arrogant. It was just the way that I had it in my head that you needed to be. Then my daughter was born. Everybody told me you don't have to be like that, but you, you think that you do because that that's the way that you were always a winner. And I, you know, yeah. I wanted to be a winner all the time. And my daughter was born and I just saw it in a, in a different way. You know, I was happy when I was at home that it didn't matter if I'd crashed in the race or I'd finished last. Um, yes, I was disappointed, of course. And the first person that you're angry with or upset uh, with is yourself. But I'd go home yeah. and I'd have Willow and it'd be like, oh, well, everything's all right. I've got, you know, um, I had a new, um, you know, perception to life that, you know, she was, um, you know, the thing that I felt that I was doing it for then, you know, I had yeah. a, I felt like I had more motivation because yeah. I, I new had reason a, almost. Yeah, yeah. I had, a, a, you know, a, um, another mouth to feed at home. Do you go, I mean, you know, there was sure, loads sure. of different, um, things that made me go faster and also enjoy it more and enjoy yeah. my time at home more than not stressing about going to the next race, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was great. Good stuff. Well, Cal, again, thanks again. Um, glad we got all the technical issues sorted out. Um, before I, uh, just a little bit of a tip before we wrap things up, um, make sure you ring ahead and make sure that your manager and your laptop's got all his clothes on, uh, and all his bits aren't hanging out. I don't want you to, uh, have any problems when you, when you give the laptop mate, but, uh, first and foremost, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. Um, Hopefully we can go for a ride when all this COVID stuff is behind us, mate. And um, you take care for the remaining two races uh, of the season. But it's been a blast. And thanks very much for your time, Cal. Absolutely. And thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. What a legend. We recorded our chat just days before Cal announced that he's actually stepping back from racing in 2021 to become Honda's test rider in a move that allowed him to spend far more time with his wife and daughter. It was really heartwarming, in fact, to learn that when he told his daughter the news, she cried with happiness beautiful stuff. Anyway, we just want to wish Carl and his family all the best for 2021 and beyond. Thanks as ever to Periap Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to your cycling buddies or if you have one, your naked yoga practicing MotoGP team manager. And finally, huge thanks to Cal Crutchlow for bringing so much to the podcast today. Thanks all. See you soon.